the NTU would like to acknowledge that this podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Wajuk Noongar people. We would like to pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and to note that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome to a special episode of the Bargain Hunters podcast, Curtain Branches Bargaining podcast. We're joined today by David Birchall, the branch president of the University of Western Sydney. Uh, David has graciously agreed to join us for 15, 20 minutes to talk about some of the uh, amazing achievements that have occurred over at the University of Western Sydney. Uh, David, thanks for coming on the podcast and, and speaking with us. Would you mind giving yourself just a brief introduction? Yeah, sure. And thanks, folks, for inviting me on. Um, I'm in the mood to evangelise. Uh, we all need to be working together on this stuff. Yeah, I've been branch president at Western Sydney University, as it now is, <laughs> don't ask, uh, for a few years. I've lost track now. Um, and involved in enterprise bargaining there since the late 2000s, I think. Uh, and we've got a team there who's been working together for quite a long time. I think probably what distinguishes our branch from a lot of others across the country was that during COVID, we got approached by the Vice-Chancellor and management uh, to talk about creating variations to the enterprise agreements. We have two at our place, academic and professional staff, which involved protecting the casual workforce, the time and shift workers across the country were in, in a lot of fear <laughs> and also involved projecting job security. In the end, that was a pretty decent deal. Uh, the university took some bank leave from people with the promise to pay it back if the university ran a surplus that year, which they did, and they paid it back. Uh, in the meantime, the casuals got protected. So that set us off on talking to management at the university about trying to do something bigger about casualisation, not simply taking care of low-paid workers, but actually trying to trying to break the business model for the casualisation of our university. So I think that, that set us apart from other places and made some stuff that we've done in this round of bargaining possible in a way that would be harder in some other places, but not impossible, I think, because in the end, it turns out it's not as expensive as you might think. Yeah. All right, that's, sorry, a long introduction. No, thanks, David. Look, we're really interested here at Curtin in what you achieved all casuals at Western Sydney. In particular, uh, I believe you've um, the heads of agreement includes 150 ongoing positions. What I'm particularly interested in is the fact that this is teaching and research positions, not just purely teaching positions. Could you talk a little bit more about the um, the details? Yeah, well, so we had that history and we've been talking to management about this stuff for a while. And like some university managements, more than you might think, <laughs> they're actually kind of embarrassed. And I think COVID made a difference. They would like a way to try and lessen their dependence upon casual employment, but they think it's very expensive. Um, if you do the sums, it's not necessarily as expensive as you might think. The main problem, I think, is to identify how the casual workforce is being used. And then you can actually get somewhere. But that means having management cooperating, at least to the extent of doing the numbers. So at our place, management did some mapping of the workforce at our request and actually worked out who was doing what kind of casual work, for what reasons, where where in the university. Our concern had been to try and work out how much, sort of economic speak, if you like, how much of it was kind of frictional, if you like, and how much of it's structural. 
how much casual employment is simply because of variations in student numbers from year to year and how much of it is just, you know, a drug habit that they've got into. <laughs> Allow them the frictional stuff and try and attack the structural stuff. Uh, the total cost of converting about a third of the casual labour at Western Sydney University, which admittedly uses less casual labour than a lot, for reasons too complicated to explain, um, is only about $7.5 million to $8 million over three years out of the university budget of getting on towards a billion. Um, so it's not necessarily as expensive as they think it is. At the same time, they have to be willing, obviously, to take on board ongoing staff, <laughs> potentially for lifetime employment, whereas, of course, they can hire and fire casual as they please whenever they want. Uh, so obviously, that has to work for them. The end of COVID is not necessarily a bad time for university management that way because they're often, you know, <laughs> offered a lot of VRs, particularly taken up by elder employees. So they've got a certain interest in refreshing the workforce. But then the problem of design from our side is they had to make sure that this is actually attacking casualization and not just them refreshing the workforce, you know, an employee being subsidized by employees to do so. So then the architecture of the scheme became important. And our industrial officer, who's the senior industrial coordinator in the New South Wales division, Josh Garber, had been working on the architecture already <laughs> with a mind to trying it somewhere and leapt on our branch as a place to try it out. So we worked together with him to create a document, which we then handed to management. And so we then argued and bargained over our document. And then they did the legwork to produce the data to try and see how the workforce was comprised and how you might attack it most effectively, how you could um, break through the parts of the casualization process that were most clearly structural and not actually frictional at all, not actually dealing with the ebbs and flows of students, but simply cheap labour. And David, did you get any pushback from management about the strategic risk of having more ongoing staff? Because I think something managements are saying around the country is that, of course, morally and, and to some extent even economically, they can see an argument for why... Um, there should be less reliance on casualization, But the rhetoric is often that from a governance standpoint, we're in this very austere, very um, uh, unpredictable funding uh, and enrollment environment. And so for that reason, uh, it, it's just it's just not possible to have more ongoing staff in the sector. Did, did you get any of that kind of feedback? And if you did, how did you counter it? Well, I think it didn't come to us exactly the way we expected. I think we always have this problem in the NTU and the union movement more broadly. We second guess what we think management thinks, and we don't always get it right. I was expecting them to come at us more with that. In practice, I think their major concern, which might be our place, it might also be the individuals we were dealing with. We had a particular senior DVC who was helpful, I thought. Um, their concern was less about the strategic danger, because as I say, it's not a vast amount of money, um, and we were offering that, that staff should make a contribution, you know, that some of it should come out of a putative trimming to, a, to salary increases. They were more concerned, I think, about the people. <laughs> they were worried, and I think they're right, a lot of casual conversion programs, if they're somewhat random, are converting people who've never been through a competitive process never been given a chance to advance their research credentials or show that they even had the research capability um, and have only developed skills basically around teaching and being ordered around by people. <laughs> so they, I think, reasonably said, look, if we're going to do something on this scale, we have to be confident about the people. We don't want to be you know, putting a third of them off through unfair performance. <laughs> um, that's, that's expensive and stupid. 
So we had to build in a competitive element to it. And we said, you know, it, it has to be offered. These positions have to be offered to, to the local casuals in the first instance, but on the basis of merit. But you have to set the bar reasonably low, and then you have to bring them into the workforce by degree. So they'll have a confirmation process of two or three years where they'll work up to what, at the end of that period, would be the normal for research allocation and have lower expectations in terms of performance. But they have to, at the start of their employment, um, have presented a research plan for the first three years to explain where they get to. That was the basic model we were working with so that we could satisfy management's worries that they weren't just getting a random collection of folks who wouldn't otherwise have passed through a competitive process. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I'm, I'm sure casual staff here at Curtin would be happy even with that competitive setup. Um, given in the recent round uh, with the changes to fair work, Curtin uh, looked at conversions for casuals and out of 5,000 staff, they offered uh, conversions to seven. Um, yep. So <laughs> not a great record. Um, so anything that can improve the chances of casuals to get some sort of security uh, and a career p- path would be fantastic. Just coming back to the... Well, um, we were assuming that the change of the Fair Work Act would, would, would provide zero people with the job and in fact they did. Yeah. Just coming back to what you were saying about the cost, here at Curtin recently, uh, management have come out and said that they're offering no increases during the nominal bargaining period, um, despite the inflationary pressures. So I'm just wondering how staff reacted to that position. Well, I mean, in all truth, <laughs> it's a somewhat nominal thing. You know, who knows what the correct salary increase? None of us know this right now, do we, for the next three years? We don't know what inflationary outlook is going to be in 2024. Not even really sure about 2023 right now, even the market economists aren't. So there's a, there's a sort of putative aspect to it. It's partly symbolic. But the way we basically worked out, the difference between the cost of, a, of, of the work being done by casuals and ongoing employees, at, at, at their, their guess was about 40%. Uh, you multiply that by 150, you work it out in terms of the salary half of the university's budget, and you say, well, look, that works out at um, about 0.25% to 0.3% per year over three years. So we'd be willing to talk about pay outcomes that are about a quarter to a to point three of a percent lower each year over three years than they would otherwise have been. So that's not a huge amount. And we had academic staff members who, you know, stood up in Zoom meetings and said, "Why should we pay for this? This is their problem they created. I, I want pay." <laughs> in the end, though, the majority of academic members didn't see it that way. They were prepared to pay that kind of figure a quarter to 0.3% of their pay each year to get this done because they hate living in a system and working in a system that works the way it does. So they're willing to, they're willing to give it a go. Now, of course, we have to make it work. We also have, we'll have to keep fighting to enforce it and to make sure that it gets done in the way it was supposed to be done or else everyone's going to be very disappointed if management just screws us over. <laughs> so I'm hoping that won't. Um, but the, the lesson we got out of that was that I think academic staff members will be willing to take that kind of punt with that kind of investment, as it were, because of the moral sort of urgency and importance of the cause. The bigger problem, I think, is professional staff or what you I think call admin staff members who, who are likely to say, well, if they're on, say, level six and below, likely to say, yeah, but I'm struggling right now, and this is all very well, but it's primarily an academic problem. So we, we also build into pay rises a, an uplift on the rates of $1,000 in the first year for professional staff at five and below and 500 for six and seven, which 
got the majority of casual staff then up beyond the point three that that was lost um, to academic staff. So they didn't feel that they were paying for the scheme. And it also kind of, you know, helped equalise pay outcomes in terms of lower paid workers at universities who were were feeling the pinch right now. Now That's um, really interesting and obviously a slightly different situation we have at Curtin is that we have the one agreement covering covering both um, professional and academic staff, but obviously the way you can bring everyone along there because, yes, we are seeing a lot of this with the academic staff as well. Um, In terms of the actual pay rise, though, despite this uh, nominal trade-off, you've actually managed to secure a fairly reasonable pay rise over the terms of your agreement, haven't you? Yeah, we think it is. Um, <laughs> it's tricky right now. Uh, the National Executive of the Union, as you know, um, worried by the inflationary breakout, has been pushing us to put pay at the forefront of things. Our problem was that we were right at the end of things by this point. We'd negotiated a lot of other good stuff as well as this. We couldn't really go out on a new industrial campaign just on pay because I just don't think most members think that pay is usually the number one issue. You want other things, conditions and, and rights to go with it. Well, we'd settled most of that stuff because it was just they were often too good to refuse, to be honest. <laughs> um, we're comfortable with where we ended up. Uh, in fact, most members um, are quite comfortable with the pay outcomes. There have been a few complaints amongst members, mostly funny enough from, from members of the professoriate, I think. I'm not sure why that is. Uh, on the whole, professional staff members are comfortable with it, with the uplift, which is on the rate. And on the whole, I think they, they trust us, as they do in most branches, our members, n- not to be selling them short. And I, I don't think we have to. Are there any other points in the heads of agreement and the final outcome um, that you'd like to highlight, David? Yeah, we're also very happy with some outcomes on conditions and rights. Most importantly, I think, as you know, there's a there's a claim for all of us uh, in terms of organisational change, or the claims in terms of organisational change and redeployment and redundancy provisions, uh, and an effort to get words into agreements about a redundancy only occurring where the work is no longer required. We got a version of that into our agreements, which which I'm quite happy with, which lodges that principle into the organisational change processes themselves so that management will be required to demonstrate during organisational change where the work is going to and how it would be absorbed into people's workloads if people are made redundant. And if it can't be absorbed into their workloads, then the redundancies can't go ahead. I think that's a really good outcome, and I'm pleased with that. Um, And we also got um, the no more than one change proposal affecting your employment in the course of a life of an agreement, so long as we gave them a get-out clause about pandemics and stuff. <laughs> so on job security, we did well, I think. And I think that was also useful in buoying up the members and, and, and fortifying them for the casual stuff because some of the job security stuff is especially important to professional staff members. And so they didn't feel neglected. They didn't feel this was all somehow about the academic workforce because they could see the job security is particularly important for them, and we made that a big ticket item in this round. Well, they're, they're brilliant outcomes. Could, could you tell us a little bit more about the role of industrial act, action um, and campaigning? Yeah, well, we had a problem. We, we, entered, we entered enterprise bargaining, I think, May, June last year, <laughs> and then almost immediately in New South Wales, we went into lockdown. So it was actually very hard to plan for industrial action in the, in the latter part of 2021 because you couldn't have any physical strikes or rallies 
um, in public visibly. You had to done stuff online, and why would you do that? Um, so I think all parties didn't move at great speed in the latter part of 2021. And then we ramped up towards industrial action at the beginning of 2022, particularly focusing on the organisational change redeployment redundancy provisions, but also the casual stuff and foregrounding those. And we got you know the ballot up, which was extremely successful, uh, the predicted action ballot around about March, I think. And then we held the threat of industrial action over management for the remainder of bargaining, as it was when we signed off on the heads. We were still ready to go at the beginning of this semester we're now in if we had to. In my experience, for what that's worth, the threat of industrial action is often more potent than the actual execution. Sometimes it's good to delay <laughs> until you can't delay anymore and then, and then act. Um, and also, I think our recent experience of industrial action is that strikes are still effective. And we had this one half-day strike that we were planning for another when we settled. Um, but they've got to be accompanied by, by visible sort of manifestations. You know. So you need well-attended rallies at central locations. In our case, you know, we, we've held our last couple of rallies outside the vice chancellor's office <laughs> down below and made them noisy and, but peaceful. Um, and actually spoken directly to him and taken a deputation up to his office with you know with a, with a whole pile of paper from members saying this is what what we need and what's wrong, and that actually seems to have an effect to actually focus on the senior management people themselves. Not 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 you know not by breaking stuff or breaking windows, um, but in an organised you know disciplined manner. And that that worked for us as well. Worked for us well this time, I think. Um, at that point where we went on strike. Management were getting cold feet on the casual conversion thing and 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 had proposed that it be reduced by half to 75. And we just said, no, that's, that's not on. And so we actually had a strike and a rally focused around pay and, and casualization as the two key issues, which may not always come off, but it did in this case. So, David, could you just give us some background about Western Sydney University, the people that work there? Um, is it a, a radical campus or are your members just overall sick? and tied with the uh, the way they've been treated by management? Yeah, I, th- I think in New South Wales, I can't speak for Western Australia, in New South Wales, I think the campuses that look the most radical are generally, to be honest, the group of eight ones. <laughs> the richest universities tend to, to appear the most militant and the strikes there, like in Sydney, they have strikes in the past have gone on for a week. We can't pull that off. Um, Western Sydney is the poorer part of Sydney. It's the outlying part of Sydney. It's traditionally the hinterland. It's the neglected part with a bad infrastructure. Um, our students come from poorer families than most universities. Um, it's a hard, it's a hard, pragmatic place, and it always has been. Uh, our members don't come across as militant, but they're fairly loyal and determined, I think. And you know, they, 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 they've built this place. <laughs> People, you know, people's workloads are higher than they are in a group of eight universities, and people have an attachment to place. And most of the professional staff live in the in the area of the university, so and sometimes right next to the campuses. So it's it's a disciplined bunch of people, I think, our membership. They may not always present as the most radical, but they're determined to get their way. And David, I think that's what's so um, inspiring about the the story you're telling and why I think you're right to want to proselytize and be evangelical about the message is that there's a lot of just good campaigning, good old fashioned um, grit from the branch. 
that it, it hasn't really come from either some, um, you know, purely romantic um, bit of militancy on behalf of the membership, but it also hasn't been a purely technocratic fix either. It's It's been about, as you put it so beautifully, David, the people that build the university, that produce it every, every day, uh, really taking ownership of the place and transforming it in a way that um, clearly managements all over the, the country are just unwilling or unable to. I think you put it better than I could, actually. So I'll leave it with you. <laughs> David, really, really appreciate the time. Thank you for, for joining us, particularly because you're on leave and it's leave very, very well deserved. And um, hopefully we, we might be able to get you on the podcast uh, to share our own good news, fingers crossed, um, uh, where we've achieved similar results. Yeah, congratulations. That would be great. That would be wonderful. I look forward to it. Cheers, mate. Thanks again. Take care.